This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Mentoring has played a huge part in my development. And once I started to recognize that my perspective or focus was shifting, I wanted to align myself with those who were already five, 10 years ahead of me, right? I've often heard that quote or phrase, like if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. (laughs) So I started looking for the rooms where I wanted to be with the people of where I knew I probably should be, but wasn't there yet but they would help me to get there faster. This is Josh Rapoon, and you are listening to the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, please consider this an open invitation to join the ever-growing What School Could Be global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your smart device or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. Today, my guest is Denise Karate. Over the past 15 years, Denise taught or has been an academic coach at every level of the K-12 system of education in Hawaii. She also taught in Japan. Currently, Denise is a vice principal in training at Waimea High School on Kauai. Denise is a Hawaii State Teacher Fellow and a National Board Certified Teacher. She has a bachelor's degree from Oregon State a master's in teaching from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and a master's in business administration from the University of Phoenix. Mahina Angwai, Denise's principal at Waimea High School writes, quote, without sounding like a cliche, having Denise as our VP trainee this year has pushed me to rethink almost every aspect of operations and future planning for Waimea High School. She comes with a wealth of experience and contacts outside of high school and the Hawaii Department of Education. And she's very thoughtfully, very professionally led me on a journey of growth and exploration. It's kind of funny because I thought it was supposed to be the other way around. An excellent writer, Denise has helped to craft several large grants for our school that will be instrumental in continuing to move our school towards being more grounded and serving our community through place-based and problem-based teaching and learning. Everything that I've thrown at her, she's managed to repurpose towards this end. Everything that I've dragged her to so she can learn from or add to her toolbox, she's managed to turn into a learning experience for me and our staff." Unquote. Principal Anguai went on to call Denise a game changer, which is a pretty epic compliment. And now, here's my conversation with Denise Karate. Denise, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me to this today, Josh. I'm excited. Good. So, Denise, I watched a presentation you gave to fellow educators during the pandemic lockdown, which was called a peer-to-peer power session. And at one point, you asked the more than 60 participants to type in the virtual chat their, quote, weather systems for that day. So let's start this conversation by asking you, Denise, what's your weather system for today? (laughs) 
<laughs> I love the weather because it can change at any moment. It can. But at this very moment, <laughs> <laughs> I would have to say that my weather is actually very much like the weather I see out my window. It's a little overcast. And while most people might associate that in a negative way, I actually really like it. It mm. means I'm a little calmer mm. and a little slower moving and definitely wanting to go more inward for some reflection. Mm. So mm -hmm. we'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> and so what was the highlight of what must have been a pretty full day at Waimea High School today? Well, you know, as a very new school leader, and technically I'm still in my internship year, mm -hmm. I have learned that there is no such thing as a dull day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, everything, right, from trying to work with partners and getting some funding into our school mm. to working with our teachers and planning what we're going to try to roll out for next year. I mean, mm. There's so much. And of course, the best part, which is your duty at lunch so I can hang out with our really awesome high school students. Yeah, I can imagine that that's a highlight every day, right? Yes. We have to remember why we're in it. Why we're in it. <laughs> we're in it for the kids. That's what we're in it for. Yes. Yeah. So Denise, hula is an ancient form of Hawaiian dance, as you know, and you wrote to me that it has been and continues to be a, quote, tremendous teacher for you. I found your choice of words fascinating. Most folks, I suspect, understand what's involved in teaching dance of various sorts. But what does it mean to be taught by a dance, in this case, hula? Like, how does hula teach you? And what does it teach you? And is hula unique, possibly, in the way that it teaches as one learns to do it? Or is that kind of a universal idea? Wow, that's such a deep question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hula is such a teacher, right? Mm. I mean, I have been doing it from when I was young, like many folks in Hawaii. And it has taught me about discipline. It has taught me about commitment. It has taught me about the importance of being connected, not mm. only with what you're dancing and for who you're dancing, but even with who you are dancing with. So, I mean, there's so many levels about the, about all of the things that Hula teaches us. Mm -hmm. And yet I can't say, I mean, there are definitely parts that are unique to Hula. And there are also, as you mentioned, parts that in learning any type of craft that would be universal. Mm -hmm. You can learn about discipline through sports. You can learn about commitment and perseverance through other hobbies, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. But Hula is definitely just something so special <laughs> in my heart. Mm -hmm. It really has created a lot of who I am and how I carry myself today. And I'm very grateful for that. Mm. You know, I've had many conversations with guests on this podcast where we've talked about public exhibitions of learning. And one of the themes that comes out of those conversations is that what's most important for kids is that they have an audience and that the audience's reaction to the work that they're doing in many ways is the most validating kind of assessment. And I suspect that's true for Hula and you as well, right? I mean, you you can perform by yourself. And I'm sure when you're Halau, your group that you train with, 
you know, doesn't have an audience right there in front of you. But when the moment comes, when you do have a chance to perform, I wonder what's going through your mind or what you're feeling, your mind and your heart in terms of the audience reaction to all of the work that you've done to to bring your hula to that particular point. I think, you know, when you talk about the actual performance within audience, it is different from a practice in that you now have this extra dimension of connection, right? You've been preparing and rehearsing for all of this, yeah. but the connection that you make with the audience in that moment, you know, it's something so special. Mm-hmm. Never ever is one single performance, even if it's the exact same dance, you can never have that exact moment again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the energy that you bring. And yet it's also the energy that the audience brings. And there's this interaction. It's actually a dance as well between the audience as well as the performers, which is really neat because like you said, when it comes to education, that is also something that becomes in addition to. It's one thing to have a test or an exam and you can demonstrate your learning. But when you have an audience who can interact with you, it takes everything to another level, a new height. And so speaking of public exhibitions, mm-hmm. you you began your teaching career using what we might call a, quote, traditional pedagogy. Those are your words. But after seeing the now seven-year-old documentary, Most Likely to Succeed, your teaching underwent a shift and you actually called it a radical practical shift. And you noted the film, which, by the way, for those listeners who haven't seen it, is very much about a public exhibition of learning that's captured on film, gave you permission, in a sense, to make the shift. So what happened in that time period? What changes, Denise, were you going through? And how did thinkers you have studied, like John Dewey or, uh, you know, Yong Zhao, challenge you along the way as you went into that radical practical shift? Well, being a learner is definitely one of my strengths. And that's probably a big part of why I went into teaching. So when I first started out with teaching, of course, I love the content and I just want to share that passion with my students. And so, like you said, very traditional in the beginning, very like, this is what we need to learn by this time. And I'm such a great planner too, right? In that way, like (laughs) by this day, we're going to have this accomplished and then we'll have all this. I got our weekly plan. I got our monthly plan. I'm good for the whole year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, as we go through it all, we realize, oh dear, you know, learning doesn't happen nice and neatly in these little boxes. It's messy. It's chaotic at times. And yet that's part of the beauty of it. And I mean, I really laugh when I think about who I was even 10 years ago. I was very much more of a content lover. Mm-hmm. And what I found was it was a lot harder to get that content to the students that I cared about. What happened was when I wasn't, actually my first year in teaching, if I can go backwards, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't quite know my content as well, but I got to know my students really well. And the things that we were able to accomplish in my first year of teaching was quite remarkable. And as the years kind of went on, I got better at my content. And then I noticed that my relationships weren't as strong. Mm. And so I think it's very interesting when I look back at that to see like, in which classes or which years did I have really strong relationships with kids and where was my content focus at that time? And just kind of putting all of those pieces into perspective. And now fast forward to a little closer to where we are today, 
I have been asked to give some presentations on social emotional learning. And I think, really? <laughs> me? Of all people, Miss Content Lover, you want me to talk about relationships? Mm -hmm. And yet, how can you teach without them? You know, I feel like I'm a convert in that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sometimes converts are the best advocates because we can share the journey that we've been through that, you know, you may be where I was eight, 10 years ago. And that's okay because I'm here to show you that change is possible mm. and evolution is too. And come join, come join us. Like, let's jump on the relationship train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, your story is so similar to mine. I, when I entered teaching back in the early 90s, I too was that content person. Although strangely, Denise, I never felt like I could master the content myself. I taught history, but I, I had mm. imposter syndrome, you know, thinking that yeah. there were these other teachers who, who had almost memorized all of history and I couldn't even come close to that. And so mm -hmm. I, like you, planned my teaching days to the minute in the beginning. And oh my God, my poor kids, those poor students <laughs> who were subjected to the, the, the march of time of Josh Rapoon's time, minute to minute. But now when I look back, you know, I saw Most Likely to Succeed seven years ago, and I realized that the film validated a shift that I went through, like you, in which I started mm -hmm. to care a lot more about the relationships than I did actually about, you know, opening the tops of the kids' heads and pouring the content inside. So it sounds like you've been on a, a similar journey in that respect. Yes, I think that that idea of, hey, I have all of this for you to learn is just a huge misconception yeah. because really there's so much that they have to offer. And I've really been inspired by, I'm sure by like many others, you know, Antipuanani Burgess's talk about gifts and that really, really resonates with me. I look at every student, every child, and I think, what's your gift? Mm. And being really intentional about trying not to let my passion for the content ever override trying to help you discover and develop and then share your gifts. Right. And I think that's where my shift has happened, right? Mm -hmm. Like not so much a cup filler, right? Like how you mentioned earlier, but thinking more about, hey, look, we each have these divine gifts. Now, how can we help each other discover them, mm -hmm. develop them, and then share them? Because that's what we each have to offer. Right. And, you know, I mentioned John Dewey and Young Zhao because you mm -hmm. had mentioned them when you were, you know, giving me some information prior to this interview. And one of the things that really struck me about Young Zhao was that he's he's radical in the sense that he does not want us to look at kids as deficits to be fixed. He wants them mm -hmm. to be considered as gifts that uh, and, and bundles of of purpose and of passion and of interest and inquiry and wonder in the world. And I, I wonder that you, as you went through your graduate work, that you, you began to read people who were validating a natural shift that was already underway in you. Is that is that what happened? Mentoring has played a huge part in my development. And once I started to recognize that my perspective 
or focus was shifting, mm. I wanted to align myself with those who were already five, 10 years ahead of me. Mm. Right. I've often heard that quote or phrase, like if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. <laughs> So I started looking for the rooms where I wanted to be with the people of where I knew I probably should be, mm. but wasn't there yet, but mm. they would help me to get there faster. Mm. Wow. I love that idea that you seek out people who are a few years ahead of you and go see what they're thinking and what they're doing, right? What they're yeah. practicing. Yeah. That's a, that's an awesome idea. So Denise, I spent some time surfing your Twitter feed and oh my, my, <laughs> my Goodness gracious, what really, really jumped out as I went months and even years back in your feed was your relentless positivity, your relentless sense of the value of celebration, of the value of lifting others up. And I also found in your Twitter feed your wonderful sense of humor and wit. So what accounts for your seemingly optimistic view of the world and your fellow humans, including your students? Like, what is the story of how Denise became Denise? And I know that's that's a big question and maybe a whole podcast could be around that, but what's what's the, the short version of that? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that, you know, being positive and looking for those opportunities, looking for those celebrations is what helps keep us afloat, especially in those really difficult and trying times. And because of that, Humor, which, you know, I think my dad would love to take credit for it, but <laughs> I'm not really sure if that's an appropriate, you know, mm-hmm. um, designation. But yeah, humor is a great way to just soften things, right? Like in an intense day, if you can make somebody chuckle or even smile, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like that's, that's great. Right. Like mm-hmm. I love, I, I'm thinking about my Twitter feed now. I'm like, what did I put there? And I'm all, <laughs> I think I remember my profile. I said something about at one time, like I was a magician yep. and a firefighter, AKA mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a teacher <laughs> or I'm an admin because I mean, those are all the things that we do, but why not have fun doing it? Right. Mm-hmm. I think when we think about perspective, we can look at something and look for all of the things that are wrong with it. Or we could look at something and say, well, those are all of the entry points of opportunity for us to do something. Mm -hmm. And what will we do? Mm -hmm. And that's really, yeah, I guess it's Mm -hmm. what keeps me going. (laughs) I think when you, when you look at your Twitter feed though, Denise, one of the things that really jumps out is that you're very specific in the way that you uplift other people. And I think what strikes me about that is that, you know, in the Hawaiian tradition, there's a word kilo, which references being mm. very aware of what's happening around you. There's a great piece that was published recently by Jonathan Medeiros, who's also on Kauai, about kilo, a beautiful essay that he wrote about that. And I think what I picked up out of your feed is that you you really are paying attention to what's going on around you with your fellow educators, with the their practice, the programs, the projects that they're working on. And you seem very deliberate about uplifting the work that they're doing. And I guess there's not really a question in there. I think it's just remarkable to me that you that you do that and you seem to do it very naturally. And again, this is probably going to sound a little corny, but someone, I believe it was in our Hawaii 
National Board Collective had brought up a, another quote or saying, and they said, you know, why be a star when you can be a constellation? Mm. And I love the imagery of that, right? Like we have amazing things happening in Hawaii's public education. Yeah. And that's not to say that we don't have areas of improvement, but we do have wonderful things. Mm-hmm. And how much more powerful is it to bring those things together and to uplift all of those things to create even more momentum to continue moving forward? Yeah. I think that we would all be much better off if we could run off of the positives instead of the the things that might weigh us down. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> so Denise, in an opinion piece, you wrote titled Non-Hawaiians Can Help Make Hawaiian Culture the Norm, published mm-hmm. in Honolulu's only daily newspaper. You wrote the following, and I quote, what is my role as a non-Hawaiian in Hawaii? As a public school educator who taught Hawaiian history for a decade, I grappled with imposter syndrome. This internal dissonance magnified when I became a mother of three part Hawaiian keiki or children, unquote. You and I share this imposter syndrome because I too taught Hawaiian studies and history and felt that dissonance that you speak of. And I wonder if you can speak to all of our listeners outside of Hawaii and share some ideas about how they can connect with host cultures, indigenous cultures that exist in every corner of America and the world. Like what are those steps an educator might take to authenticate their teaching of a subject grounded in a place and culture that is not necessarily theirs or that they didn't or aren't originally from, if you will. Yeah, writing that piece was definitely a journey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for it because it really did move me from a place of great insecurity to a place where I was able to accept responsibility for what it is that I can and maybe should be doing. So I hope that through that piece, folks who are not Native Hawaiian could still feel included and very much important as part of the I don't want to say solution because I don't want to make it sound like we're trying to solve a problem, Mm -hmm. but that we all have significant roles to play. And so for me, I think the dissonance per se could be alleviated if we stop thinking about that there's a right and a wrong or that there is experts, you know, and really just understanding that we are all learners. I mean, there are experts. And yet, if you talk to an expert, they will tell you, if they're truly an expert, they will tell you that they are not an expert. They will say that they are a learner and that they have much more to learn. And if we all were to take on that mindset of being learners, professional learners, (laughs) can Mm -hmm. that be a job description? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. But with that mindset that we are all on this journey of trying to learn more, trying to be better connected, then whether or not you are of that culture and where you live, you still have a place and a kuleana or responsibility Mm -hmm. to do your part, whatever that may be. Yeah. I think that's what happened with me as well. I I think, you know, I, it seemed very disrespectful to me that I would ever consider myself an expert in Hawaiian culture or even in Hawaiian history. And so 
although I was the one designated to teach it, I think the role that I picked, which you are, were just talking about, was as the sort of guide on the side or the coach or the mentor who would help my students walk down that pathway of inquiry and wonder about Hawaiian history and Hawaiian culture themselves, right? I was just along mm -hmm. the journey with them. And what they picked up from me, I think, was that I was as much a learner as they were. And that kind of validated the fact that we were on this journey together. I think, is that does that sound similar to what you experienced and what the point of this piece was that you wrote? Yeah, I feel if we all approach it, that we are all learners, right? Like you said, then there's no hierarchy in that sense that or having to need to feel that you are an imposter because you're not trying to be more than you are. Yeah. What we are are learners and and that's a great place to be. Yeah. That's awesome. So hey everyone, stay with us. We'll be back with more questions for Denise Karate. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Denise Karate, a vice principal in training at Waimea High School on the island of Kauai. So Denise, in this next section, before our second break, I want to focus on some big picture issues and questions and ideas. This is like the 10,000 foot looking down stuff, okay? So I was talking with one of your former colleagues at Chiefest Kamakahele Middle School, Kevin Matsunaga. He was a guest on this show back in 2021, and he called you a, quote, forward thinker, able to see the bigger picture, end quote, which I loved. So I want to ask you a high altitude question. So many folks are now talking about, quote, capacity, as in building the capacity of teachers. But capacity for what? Maybe it's the capacity for building more student-driven learning or more deeper learning assessments or more real-world challenges or more caring and connected communities. So I think we are still in the early stages of a teacher capacity movement, if you will. What are your thoughts, Denise, on how we fuel this movement, give it life, or bring more teachers into the center where the action of capacity building is happening? Well, first off, Mr. Matsunaga is definitely one of my idols. <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing. So anything, you're right. Anything coming from him is just a compliment in general. Mm. 
As far as capacity building, you know, I think about what we discussed a little earlier today. You know, education is at a wonderful place in that we are shifting. We are shifting from this idea that the role of a teacher is to fill these empty vessels. And once we move away from that, though, we're talking about an entire system that needs to rethink about its role and its behaviors. And so when we are talking about building teacher capacity, it's how do we empower our teachers to be able to do those things that we need them to do so that we can empower our students. And I think one of the phrases I sometimes will refer to is how do we champion our teachers so Mm. that they can champion our students, Mm. right? Because at the end of the day, that is the reason why we're doing the work that we do. So how do we build the capacity of those who need to champion our students? Mm -hmm. And how do we do that? Well, a lot of it does start, I mean, like, and it's going to sound so corny, but a lot of it starts with the connection, right? Our relationships. If we're asking teachers to fundamentally change perhaps the way they view their role in -hmm. a classroom, that's a big step and it's scary and it has levels of vulnerability. And if you don't feel safe enough or supported enough to be able to make those shifts, then those shifts won't happen. Mm right? We talk a lot about with students, high expectations, high support. Well, the same is, the same goes with adults. If we have these high expectations, then we have to provide that high support. We have to model it for them as well. We have to coach them along the way so that they can see and feel for themselves the difference and also experience the the wonderful benefits of the shift so that then they're now internally motivated, you know, for a lack of a better word, but they are now invested in this idea because they have felt it for themselves, how meaningful the shift is. Mm -hmm. And so you talked about teachers, you know, shifting their role to being champion of the kids. It sounds like what you're proposing here that would, you know, the idea that would give fuel to the teacher capacity movement is that teachers really have to be champions of each other. Yes, this is not work that can be done alone. Oh, I shouldn't say it can't be done alone. Mm. It can be done alone for a very short time, though. If you're talking about sustainability and if you're talking about a long-term systems-wide type of thing, it does take cooperation and collaboration because that support is needed. All of those connections are needed among all of those involved, because that's what's going to elevate the practice. Mm-hmm. And are there any specific examples or an example that you could give me of how that's actually unfolding at Waimea High School, where you are now in administration? You know, an example of where you your community is doing something that really moves that idea of teachers supporting and and being champions of each other and developing relationships with each other and by extension then modeling all of that for the kids that they're actually teaching right i think 
I would say what we've been able to do this year with what we've called our HA days. Mm. So in the Department of Education for Hawaii, we have a framework which we refer to as HA. Mm -hmm. HA is the Hawaiian concept that has to do with breath. Mm. And what they did was they broke down the acronym of breath to represent belonging, responsibility, excellence, aloha, total well-being, and Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so anyhow, this framework, we have created these HA days which are now going to occur quarterly at our school as we saw an opportunity to use this as a vehicle to bring both teachers and students together. Mm. And so initially it was something that was spearheaded, I think a lot more with the leadership and just trying to get some of the coordination out so that teachers themselves could just experience it Mm. and be present to feel what it's like to be in these types of conditions where you are able to connect. Like I said, I think that's a really big word for me right now is this idea of connection. Mm -hmm. And once the teachers and students had this holiday experience, it became its own catalyst. Mm -hmm. Now students were asking, how can we have more of these? Can we have a student-led one? Could we put one together? Mm. You know, and, and that was fabulous. And even teachers were saying, you know, this is a really great idea, you know, maybe for our next one. And they were starting to contribute their suggestions, which again, you know, it had to start somewhere though. Right. And I always think about how sometimes in our effort to include many voices, we forget that we don't know what we don't know. Mm. It's easy to ask someone, hey, what would you like? But they can't tell you what they like if they haven't necessarily seen or experienced anything. They could tell you maybe some ideas, but it may not even be what they would have envisioned for themselves. It's just they haven't had that experience yet. Mm. And then therefore, as school leadership, you know, we have that opportunity to look around, see what is out there, what are others doing, or to just think outside of the box, try something and see what happens with it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's that's great. I was actually going to ask you about HA a little bit later, but I'm going to move it up in the queue here and, and ask you, Okay. I want to actually talk about the concept of an advisory period during school. So a previous okay. guest on this podcast, Chris Baum in California, he's the founder of the Millennium School and the Argonaut School, wrote the following in a blog, which we both read, and I'll quote, here is advisory as it is now in the average U.S. middle or high school, a loosely supervised classroom where students are talking, working on homework, maybe receiving some administrative announcements from the teacher. To many, it feels like wasted time, though maybe a welcome break. Advisory as it could be? Now that's a whole nother story. And to me, one of the most promising ones in education, end quote. So you're working on a project that links advisory with the idea of na ho'opena'au or ha. So mm-hmm. for our listeners who are not familiar with ha, I think you've already explained what it is. So what is this project that you're working on that kind of brings the principles and the culture of ha into the concept of advisory? So I'm a huge proponent of streamlining and coordinated efforts. Mm. And our school already has time designated for advisory. It's 30 minutes every other day. And like you said, it previously 
looked a little bit more like somewhat of a study hall, somewhat mm-hmm. of an announcements time, which, you know, just meant what an opportunity. Right. <laughs> we have a chance to make this time so much more meaningful. And I think even with the superintendent's push for more social emotional learning, which I would rather refer to it as social emotional living, you know, mm. maybe we can start getting that trend out there. Yeah, or like SEL, that. social mm. emotional living. Uh-huh. I like it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we can use that time more purposefully mm-hmm. where we can create those connections that students need. They need connections with their peers. They do need connections with their advisory teacher who could be a mentor. Mm-hmm. You know, we need them to start connecting to themselves as well. Mm. What is it that I want to do? What do I see as my purpose? What are some things that I'd like to learn? And so advisory is this really robust space, or it could be, you know, and I think the framework of HA is such a natural fit. Mm. And again, if we're talking about streamlining and coordinated efforts, I know that many schools often struggle with trying to implement HA because they feel it's, oh, one more thing on our plate. But if you looked at it really closely and you really understand the the foundations of it all, it's just doing what we are doing currently better with greater intention. Mm, I mean, mm. how can you argue with a sense of belonging? Yeah, Every child deserves a sense of belonging. How can you argue with responsibility and excellence, especially in school? You know, I mean, well, That's unfathomable, right? So integrating it with frameworks that already exist is very powerful. So that's really cool because I've already shared what you're working on with Chris Baum, who I mentioned, Mm. wrote that blog. And he, you know, I'll just let our listeners into the inner circle here. He really wants to talk to you. I am so excited. I love partnerships. Yeah, yeah. And I think what he's doing is very, very much groundbreaking. And your work is groundbreaking as well. And I think back, Denise, to my time in school and that advisory really didn't mean anything. It was just a point to check in or to get something done that might have been due for the next class after advisory. So this is really exciting that you're working on this. And so kind of along the same lines, in advance of this interview, I I asked you to provide me with something that would explain your philosophy of education. And you wrote an astonishing response that is 638 words long. And in in the very (laughs) middle of that response which makes a clear case for the purpose of our public schools, you asked the question that stopped me in my tracks. And you asked, why are we preparing students to become future leaders when they can be leaders today? And so I want to ask, like, from what special place did that question come from? And what is the point that you were trying to make by asking that question? What's the message that comes from that question? just had this conversation the other day with a counselor and he was expressing how I'm so how a student came in and said you know I'm so glad you're trying to help me to make my future better and that's great and all but I need you right now like I need help now 
And I think that feeling, that tone is where that question comes from. Mm. I'm glad we are like education should help prepare students for the future, but we cannot at the same time forget that they also need us now. And why can't they be leaders now? They are so creative. They are so innovative and they have a lot of time on their hands where they could totally build solutions that maybe adults haven't thought of or don't have time for, Mm -hmm. I think. And if you want to talk about meaningful learning, well, what's more meaningful than being on a mission to solve a problem that that is something that's very personal to you? Mm -hmm. So I think it's that idea of someone illustrated it to me, right? It's, It's two parts. Like one, like we're trying to keep out the dark, right? And also we're trying to build the lighthouse at the same time. Mm. Or another illustration, this idea of parallel circuits. Yes, we need to do this, but we should also be doing this at the same time because both are needed. And I think sometimes we focus a little bit too much on just the future. Mm. Oh, this is going to be important for you when you get older. Well, when you're 14, 15, 16... I don't know how much you're really thinking about the future. We would like them to, but even biologically, their brain is not developed to think that much further ahead. They also want to know, why is this important to me now? Mm. And so as educators, I think it's really important that we manage that tension of now and in the future. Mm. And both can nourish each other. Yeah. You know, there's a great scene, Denise, in Most Likely to Succeed, where Mark Aguirre, who's a humanities teacher and the the scene revolves around him getting his kids set up to do Socratic seminar, which is Mm. a real novelty to them. And he, he says at one point, you know, how can we ask kids to be decision makers when we never ask them to make decisions in school? And I think you're asking the same question. If we want our kids to be leaders, like why would we wait until the end of schooling for them to actually go out and be leaders. Why aren't we asking them to be leaders even at a very young age? So they begin to experience it. It seems like that's what, that's your line of thinking here, right? Yes. And again, funny, right? We just had a professional development session with our teachers and one of the folks that we are working with, he was talking about the difference between just in case and just in time instruction. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of instruction that we happen to teach our students just in case you need this in the future, just in case versus just in time. Now, when it's important and it's relevant to the student, very meaningful to them, this is when they're really going to pick it up and absorb it and take it in and do something and grapple with it. Yeah. 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 So Denise, one one more 10,000 foot question before we go to our second (laughs) break. And it's kind of along the same lines. I want to ask you about transitions, the kind kids go through in our current K-12 system of education. You've taught at every level of school, high school in Japan, kindergarten in Hawaii, then elementary, then grade six math in middle school, then an academic coach at the middle school level. And now you're at the high school level again as a VP in training. So there's a line of thinking out there that argues Mm -hmm. our kids face three major transitions during their schooling. And the argument goes along the way, the learning becomes increasingly an individual endeavor, the child competing for a grade or a score or having, after having you know, lost touch with the joy of being a child steeped in wonder. And I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but what are your insights 
now that you've got this experience as an educator, what are your insights about the progression of schooling, what we gain, what we lose? And please feel free to wave your magic wand as part of your imagining <laughs> about what learning could be in the context of this kind of march that kids go through in our K-12 system. So I was talking with a cohort that I belong to, and we were just having this discussion of kind of what you said, some of the benefits, what's gained and what's lost when we specialize, right? In elementary, you have this very well-rounded education where things are already connected and seen as part of a whole. And then as you move into secondary, we try to separate these things so that we can, you know, quote unquote, become more expert in these content areas. And unfortunately, sometimes too, though, in that separation, I, I shouldn't say sometimes, many times, most mm -hmm. times, <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in that separation, while we are trying to create expertise, we've also created disconnection. And therefore, the relevance becomes something that may not be as clear. And so there is that tension of give and take of how much do we separate them? Mm. I think it's very fascinating that now that I'm at a high school level, we are having conversations about interdisciplinary units. In other words, we're trying to get our English department and our social studies departments to be able to coordinate lessons and come up with a humanities unit. And I think, wow. So in other words, we're trying to go back to what elementary was more like, mm -hmm. where the things we were reading in science complemented the things that we were, you know, it just things, there wasn't such silos in the learning. Mm -hmm. Things were a lot more connected and so I'm not really sure if I, where I want to go with this. I think it's just, there is a cost when we yeah. over separate to the point where it's unrecognizable. Yeah. And if I can compare it to anything, it's almost like Frankenstein, right? Like you have all of these pieces hmm. and they're so separated now. We're trying to bring them back together. And then what we look at is, almost unrecognizable, like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> How do those things go together? Instead of maybe not separating them so far apart in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe one way to look at it, I mean, you talked about costs, but maybe the the other way to look at it in, in economic terms is opportunity cost. And that, mm -hmm. that what we don't do, what we're choosing not to do, what we have chosen not to do over the years, over the decades, even over a hundred years, there is an opportunity cost to that. And I think, you know, my personal opinion is the more educators get together and think about what those opportunity costs are and then maybe act on them, um, then then we really start to make progress and we start to build capacity like you and I were talking about earlier, you know. So that's great. So Denise, before we go to break, I've not done this before, but I'm going to do it here. I'm not actually going to ask a question, but I am going to do, I'm going to do something that I call reading into the record. So, you know, if you're, if you're in court or if you're in a, a legislative body, people read things into the record so that they make sure that it, that it's there. And I'm going to read something into the record here that you wrote that I think was actually quite remarkable. So almost a year ago, in April of 2021, when we all thought COVID might be ending, you wrote an internal article of sorts for the Hawaii Public Schools website. And I'm going to read a short 
paragraph into the record for our, for our listeners and for all time. So, quote, a mix of emotions ripple throughout our campuses. Students squeal in excitement upon seeing their friends. Some are overwhelmingly shy and retreat to corners as it's been a long time since they've been surrounded by anyone other than their families or it's a new campus or their friends are in another cohort. Many are tired as they adjust their circadian rhythms and bedtimes. Most are grateful for the opportunity to interact with their teachers and receive immediate feedback, end quote. And I just wanted to read that into the record, Denise, because I think that that's one of the most beautiful arrangement of words to express a complex thought about what returning to school is all about. And I, I thank you for writing about it. And I wish we had a whole podcast that we could devote to talking about it, but we don't. And so I, I appreciate that. And with that, I will say, hey, everyone, stay with us. We'll be back with more questions for Denise Karate. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. As a What School Could Be podcast listener, I know you're curious about what's happening in Hawaii schools. This is Christy Oda, and together with National Board Certified Teachers, we launched Educators Edge a new podcast that gathers innovative educators with diverse perspectives to collaborate around a topic of their choice. There's something so special about hearing teachers talk story about the work they do to transform education for Hawaii's young learners. I invite you to listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or go to bit.ly slash educators edge to subscribe. Aloha and mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Denise Karate, a former educator at the Chiefest Kamakahele Middle School and now a vice principal intern at the Waimea High School on the island of Kauai. And before we continue the conversation, listener friends, please take a minute to give us a rating and review in your podcast app. It really helps this series gain a wider audience. So Denise, you are one of a group of hand-picked educators who are part of the Hawaii State Teacher Fellows Program. So I'm gonna go out on a limb here and suggest that you fellows are into some wild and crazy stuff. You do things I think are not typical for a professional learning community. So what are some of the highlights for you? Activities you've worked to organize with your fellow fellows 
over the two pandemic years that represent out-of-the-box thinking around professional development, learning, and networking? And how have your fellows incorporated a fun factor into the process of becoming professionals and leaders? Well, if I can just say being a part of the Hawaii State Fellows is really just, it's been such an honor to be surrounded by so many inspired educators and to see the work that they're doing, whether it is figuring out how to do band online and concerts Mm. and then coordinating things like a writing retreat, which I wish I could have attended, but I had, I was double booked, Mm. but I do have to say I had to make a choice whether to continue with the fellowship or to go into administration. Mm -hmm. And since Hawaii state teacher fellows is for teachers, I am, they still claim me and I will (laughs) claim them too, Good for them, but I was only able to stay with the fellowship up until I officially became a vice principal intern. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I think one of the, aside from the writings that they encouraged us to do, which we have spoken about two of them already in this podcast, one of the really great things I had an opportunity to participate in was this Hawaii Kids Can. It was just really neat to be able to speak with students and Mm. to hear their voices about what they wanted to see in schools. And they actually inspired me to pilot what became Pu'eo Pals. And that was, again, kind of going back to your talk a little earlier about transitions. It was an initiative to connect our middle school, because I was at the middle school at the time, and our feeder elementary schools And so, again, it's still during the COVID time where we had to do a lot of things through the screen, not in person, but we managed to pair up classes, seventh grade classes with fifth grade classes and do, I guess, in a way, like virtual pen pals sort of, except because it's virtual, we could give the students our incoming, who who would become incoming sixth graders, right? We could give them a school tour. They were able to do a question and answer session and just really start creating those relationships even before the students stepped on campus. And Mm -hmm. I think that was just amazing that that idea came from students saying, you know, transitions are hard. Like, what can we do about it? Like, I feel like when I go to school, I don't know anyone. And and this idea popped up about, well, okay, well, let's try this. Let's mm. see what happens. Mm. And I'm excited that it's actually expanding. I believe one of my colleagues is taking, because we only did a few classes, but taking the entire fifth grade class now at one of our large feeder schools and pairing up with the seventh graders this year. So mm-hmm. very fun. Yeah, I think, you know, when I was working through my preparation for today, what really jumped out at me was was the way that the fellows responded to the pandemic. I know this happened across the country, so it was very encouraging to me. But uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, there was just a lot of retreating into the lockdown. But what seemed to happen with the fellows, and, and I think this was happening across the state with public, private and charter 
educators is that they just said, you know, hiki no, can do. There's all kinds mm-hmm. of things that we can do in this particular situation. And they went ahead and did them. Everything that you can imagine is in that list, including professional development, but activities, the virtual, a virtual watch party with popcorn. Oh my God. You know? Yes. I was just going to say like, you, you reminded me that we did a watch party, which again, just like you said, being innovative in yeah. a difficult time recognizing the technology that we now had access to and thinking about, all right, how do we expand the ripples? How do we get more folks involved or at least aware of things like the film more likely to succeed? Let's have a watch party on YouTube. You know, I was like, okay, let's do it. You know, and (laughs) it was just so much fun. So much fun to be around people. That's the silver lining of the pandemic is that people realized there were opportunities and they really went after them. And I, I found mm-hmm. that very inspiring as I was as I was putting this together. So so listen, a couple more things to talk about. What school could be.org released a handbook of sorts titled The Field Guide on, <laughs> on How Not to Return to Normal. And you noted to me that you have been staring at this guide and its companion learning through interest cards for weeks now, still thinking about who to share it with and when and how. So more generally speaking, Denise, what do you think is behind, and I I realize this is kind of back to those 10,000 foot level questions, but what is behind this surge of educators and education leaders who seem to be crying out that we not return to normal in education right at the same time that the general public seems to want educators to do exactly that, to return to normal? And so I'm just wondering what you think about what's happening in this particular moment? I think what comes to mind is that there is a difference between normal and stability. Mm. And I think what people are wanting is stability and familiarity. Mm. And that's not equivalent to normal. And so if we take that perspective, you know, we can say, yes, let's not go back to normal because the normal pre-COVID wasn't that great, you know, if we're going to talk about it in terms of public education, like I said, there are good things happening, but there's so much room for improvement also at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so for us to say, hey, we're going to go back to pre-COVID, that's very backwards in thinking, right? That's, I can't think of a better metaphor other than like, who goes back to a candle if you have a working flashlight? Mm. Like, we just wouldn't do that, right? Mm. And so again, it's just, I think, discerning that there's a difference People want something that's stable, something that's familiar. There's been a lot of change happening in a short amount of time, and that can be overwhelming. And yet, of course, for someone like me, I'm like, there's been a lot of change that has happened in a short amount of time. Wow, look at all of the wonderful things that have been accomplished. And so I think thinking of that, you know, as we move forward, yes, there's going to be some stabilizing needs out there. I think families just want to feel comfortable knowing that there's something that they can rely on. Mm. And that's an opportunity for public education to think about, well, what is this new comfort going to look like? Mm. Because comfort doesn't necessarily have to be settling for something that is mediocre. We can have our new normal be something that is about excellence something that is about high, again, high expectations, high support. And so that's kind of where my mind goes when you talk about going back to normal. Hmm. It's really, they're not wanting normal as much as they want something that's stable and familiar. 
Mm. And, and then, you know, not to talk too much, but if we're going to talk about making changes, I think that's a huge, huge part of making changes is if you can tether it to something that's familiar, mm. it will probably receive a lot less resistance because at least there is something there that people can recognize mm. and you tweak from there. Mm. So your advisory project seems like a perfect case study of that because you really are potentially shifting the culture of advisory, which many families and parents, they've understood that idea for a long time. They became over the years very comfortable with, oh, that's where you check in, get administrative announcements and maybe, you know, finish up your homework or something. But when you make a cultural shift and you get them to be comfortable with that idea, then they become advocates for that idea and you move forward together, right? That yes. seems to be what you're talking yes. about there. Yeah. I was very fortunate. I took this improvement science course and it's just been such a game changer for me and how I think about how we can move forward mm. as school leaders, as a system. Mm. Just if we really envision everything that we do as iterations, right? Yeah. Then we don't have to worry about these big sweeping changes. It's yeah. about making the, the tweaks, just yep. continuously tweaking. And then when you say that, it's not so intimidating anymore. Right. So speaking of improvement science, <laughs> so something your principal, Mahina Angwai, said to me prompts me to take a walk, a real walk on the wild side, Denise. I'm sorry. I got to do this. And I'm going to propose a hypothetical. So let's imagine that Waimea High School decides to designate itself as a demonstration school, open to anyone or any group who wants to go on a learning walk on your campus. And even better, your school decides to build an open source website that will be filled with resources and demonstrations of what school could be that anyone can have or use or retool or repurpose. So in effect, Waimea High School becomes a living, breathing laboratory of what school could be. I, I The question I wanted to ask you was, you know, what's already happening at your school that might be the object of a learning walk, but you've already explained, for example, the, the HA protocol and the HA days and the HA advisory, that's a terrific example of how you could become a demonstration school. So I wonder if there's anything else, and I'll, I'll prompt you, but you don't have to take this example. I remember reading on your school's website about the Waimea River Project, which really you know piqued my interest, but it could be that, or it could be something else that kind of indicates that the hypothetical is actually becoming a reality that Waimea High School could be that demonstration school, that place that people come to to do learning walks to find out what school could be. so grateful you asked this question. This is where I get really excited. <laughs> so one of, uh, I'm like, which one am I going to talk about? Mm. One of the things we do have is, you know, our Hawaiian language class is actually occurring off campus at a nearby lo'i, mm. so on, at a nearby farm. And that has been really great because I think it's helped shift both students and teachers' mindsets about where learning occurs. It doesn't have to occur in four walls. It can be in a place-based area. And how much more languaging are our students learning when they are surrounded in that type of environment under a hale built by some students? You know, like not all of those students were involved, but some of our students, right? And mm. again, being, you see the kalo, you see 
you see the things that we are talking about when they talk about the wind, you feel it. When you talk about the sun, you're in it, right? So I think that's one of our really cool little pilots that we hope to expand. Another one for us would be our partnership with Ivikua. He is an expert in aquaculture and he also has a farm where he does microgreens. So he has this expertise that he brings to the school and we as a school help provide space and also students who would like to learn from him. And so it's this very interesting school business partnership. And I think in those types of ways, we are reimagining even how schools operate within its community. Mm. Because one of, I think, the passions that, that both my principal and I have is how do we create a high school that really is a critical component in creating a regenerative economic system? Wow. You know, and because... Yes. I mean, really, <laughs> we talk about the future and what we want education to do and help students become. Schools are also part of the community. And so how are we helping that larger, much larger picture? Mm. You know, we have had such an extractive economy, especially in Hawaii, which whether it was sugarcane or pineapples, there was things that were being taken and we did make money. And, and we see, though, that that has a shelf life. So how can we help be a part of that solution of a regenerative economy where our students are thinking in ways of we care for the land, the land cares for us, and it continues to nurture each other so that we have sustainability for years to come, Mm. generations to come. Wow, I can already imagine the day, Denise, when the What School Could Be podcast, maybe a year or two from now, could come to Waimea. And we we do a live broadcast and we find out all the things that you folks are doing over there that would represent being a demonstration to the rest of of the state, public, private, and charter. I I love Mm -hmm. those ideas and I love the fact that oftentimes the way these ideas spread is through just simple peer-to-peer contact that when one teacher chooses to go somewhere else and meet with a group of other teachers and they they talk story and they share these kinds of ideas, then sparks happen. And people act on those sparks and they start thinking about, well, what could I do where I am, right? And that's that's actually really cool. So let's let's agree to do that. We'll, uh, we'll make a trip over to Kauai and bring the podcast there. And uh, we'll do All it together. All right, I'm making sure that you, I'm writing it down, <laughs> committed. Yeah. What school could be podcast is coming. It is. 2024. <laughs> and you know, I, I've, I've done a number of episodes with educators on Kauai, and it's just remarkable. I did not see this coming when I started this podcast, that, that the island of Kauai and Hawaii has actually got some really remarkable things happening. And that's been a wonderful process to pursue. And part of the reason why I keep going from one educator to another is that one of them will tell me about somebody else. And then I start doing the work on that. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing what's happening over there. Yeah. So that's very cool. So Denise, we're we're here at the end and I just have one more for you, one more question for you. So you shared with me that colleagues of yours, Pono Shim, Miki Tomita, Heijung Tano, Kristen Brummel, Christy Oda, Noelani Arista, and Sandy Camelli are the giants upon whose shoulders you stand. 
And I want to focus on one of these individuals, Kristen Brummel. For listeners everywhere who do not know her, who is she? And what has she brought to your life, your work, your educator practice? What is it that Kristen Brummel does and has done that moves you forward each day? Well, maybe this is the imposter syndrome kicking in. I wouldn't call them my colleagues. I would so refer to them as my mentors because mm-hmm. they really have been just that. Mm-hmm. For Kristen, she's been just this tremendous, positive, forward-thinking influencer in the Department of Education. I met her through the Hawaii State Teacher Fellows. She was, I guess, we could say like the main facilitator and organizer for that. Mm -hmm. And so she's the one that really thinks up of all of these great ways of helping teacher leaders really bring up their ideas and then put them into action. Mm. You know, she's just so tremendous in her vision and what she's able to accomplish. I, <laughs> I'm i like having a hard time talk about her because she really has been able to do some tremendous, tremendous work. It was her idea uh, when it came to the peer-to-peer Power webinars sessions. that you spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, she saw an opportunity where, you know, teachers talk about it all the time. Oh, you know, why do we pay thousands of dollars to bring in these consultants? We have such expertise here. You know, Kristen made it happen. Mm. She created an avenue so that teacher voices could be heard and shared, shared widely. And Mm. I just think that's tremendous because there was nothing like that here at the time. She made it happen. Mm. And she does it so gracefully. She just Mm. brings together all these wonderful resources. Mm. So, Yeah, that's great. I'm going to add to your shout out with my own. When I, one of the links that you provided me, which I referenced very early in this conversation was that one of those uh, peer-to-peer power sessions that you did. And when I went to that link, I, I, I'm not joking. It's not hyperbole, Denise. I was astonished. That webpage seemed to go on for miles and it was one link after another of these power sessions. And I knew that Kristen had organized this and yet her name is nowhere on that page. She didn't put herself there as the organizer or didn't need to take any credit for it. But it's it's a it's just a tremendous testament to, again, that hikino, that can-do idea that we can actually mm-hmm. be much better as educators as a result of the pandemic, you know, that we're going to seize that opportunity. And so, I, I've loved working with her, and I, I just think that she's such a selfless and graceful person. And I, I, I'm glad that we had a chance to give her that shout out here on this podcast yes. today. So yeah. well deserved, well deserved for <laughs> sure, for sure. Yeah. So Denise, thank yeah. you for this time today. You have inspired me and put even more fuel in my tank today as I search out and give voice to all the educators out there working so hard on reimagining learning. So thank you again. And I hope you and your lovely family stay safe and in good health. And I hope you have a great rest of your year at Waimea High School as a a VP in training. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It really was a wonderful conversation. And I always say, I feel like I take away more than I ever give. So thank you so much. Awesome. We'll see you soon. All right. 
My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>